So we got Lester Irubina Rigni here today. Um, yeah, Irubina, he's that fellow that you, <laughs> that fellow that I've spent the last uh, couple of decades citing in all my work. And, uh, and yeah, for the last couple of weeks, I've, I've got to got to work with him, which is really cool. Uh, we're working on a, a paper together, which is a bit of a uh, state of the kind of. <laughs> um, I don't know, manifesto. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, a big, uh, a big call out to um, where we're up to in education, uh, Aboriginal education particularly, but then um, how that lens kind of uh, impacts the kind of future directions of education in general and public education uh, from, our, from our point of view. Um, yeah, Rabina is Ngandiri uh, Fala, um, and Ghana too, I think, uh, down this way. So we're in Adelaide now. Um, and we started out on country together um, a couple of weeks ago and, and walked through. And, and yeah, that's the sort of foundation of our work here. And um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to let you, but I introduce yourself a bit better. And, <laughs> um, you know, however you want to go, whatever lingo I use. And, um, and then we'll go off from there and start with that story. My younger judge of being younger, Porka, and I less the good knowledge here, a better Yamama, you know, yes, a professor of education. Naja Yugandaya Yakundalia, Marnina Bodni, Ngardo, here a bit of Rigney. And it's look, it's a real honor to be with you on the Zoom today. and um it's a you know to try and rehearse some of the sort of the big issues you know one of the key questions of indigenous scholars need to ask um uh, what are the biggest challenges that indigenous the indigenous child is facing currently and and in the mm -hmm. future and i know uh, to be on this zoom with you is a real honor um uh your work has been asking this question for a long time um, and, you know, it's a real treat to be able to sit here and, uh, and begin to rehearse what some of our thinkings are around these notions of what are the biggest challenges that uh, our community mm. will face, um, because we, uh, the human condition at the moment is imperiled. And uh, asking this question, what is the human condition, the Aboriginal human condition? And therefore, what are the, what are the solutions to go forward? These are big questions, um, but mm. there, we, are, we, we are right 
and we must ask these questions about mm. um, uh, where to from here. Um, mm. our, 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 when you first came to UniSA as a, a visiting research fellow, which uh, we were really, uh, really glad that you accepted, one of the first key things was to take you out on country and show you country and place. And country and place does a couple of things. Um, when we took you to Gauna country, and um, uh, there's a wonderful river called um, up at Morialta. And it's a place where our women and children have uh, lived for thousands of years. Um, the site can be dated back to uh, our, our occupation in that site, you know, for more than 40,000 years. And so um, to take you there and your little family um, was just amazing. Uh, and you can see all the old trees and, and, and Gauna tell the stories about um, the, the wonderful ideas that were passed to next generations at that place. Um, the rich thinking, mm -hmm. the cultural and, ling and linguistic intelligences that our people have known for 50,000 years and still pass them on. This is the place where it occurs, we're one of them. And I think that uh, in doing so, you saw the richness where ceremonies happened, where um, story told, where place matters, where culture matters, where language matters, where the raising of children is the most critical element of, of an Aboriginal culture. And so uh, when we visited that site, you saw our modern interpretation of an ancient sort of culture whereby we've built this playground with seven great ancestors, um, the, 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 the eagle, Wirdu, and it's got a huge giant nest the size of three cars mm. on a building slippery dip. So children mm. can climb to the giant eagle's nest. It's part of our dreaming story. The second dreaming story is the baicha or the, the ilia, the snake. And this ilia, ilia snake um, uh, go, co comes all the way down from the Kimberley through Uluru and then comes further south. And, there's a linking of all these dreaming stories along the way. Then there's the three nests of the Noongana, the Kookaburra. Then there's the uh, seven ancient trees that are all the Ngarpadlas, the aunties. And there's stories about each of them. And then there's the dugout canoes, the, 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 the trees in which we, we, we carve um, respectfully um, to take us on our journeys to new places. Um, and so you can see where the, the canoes were cut out. Um, so our people have been walking on it for such a long time, but our number one thought was for all Australians to benefit from getting a, a bit of our culture in, in this place. And um, uh, like your work and many other Aboriginal groups around the country, um, place matters to everything. Mm. We are connected mm. to place and place is connected to us. Uh, we are connected mm. to all things above and below the sea and the, and the earth and everything is connected to us. Um, not to understand this is to both imperil not only ourselves and our communities and our families and our children, 
um, but mm. imper it imperils the planet and all of those things mm. that I'm related to. So I'm related to the kookaburra. I'm related to the snake. I'm related to the kangaroo. I'm related to Noongana, the, 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 cook, mm. the um, uh, kookaburra, the wildu, the eagle. Um, I have a duty and a moral responsibility to make sure that they are um, thriving. And if they're not thriving, then I won't be thriving. They are the barometer by which I measure how well our culture is intact. Mm. So um, mm. uh, whilst we ask this question, what is the biggest challenges? It's no coincidence from a Gauna, Naranga, Ngadangeti man's perspective, which I bring. What are the biggest challenges for my community would be asking, they, they are asking the same question of what this is for all of our relatives, the river, the, the air, the trees, mm. and the mm. animals and everything in it. So um, uh, it is timely that uh, thinkers like you and me address these, 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 these uh, big questions because across our careers, we're busily, busily doing busy work Mm. publishing mm. for universities, uh, you know, winning mm. research grants, working with our communities, loving our families, um, mm. raising our children. These are busy, busy, busy times. Mm. Um, but we have a duty, I would think, uh, to talk about what Absolutely. are the biggest challenges. And so well, how you the, the, the and biggest how you role talk about those duty, that'd be good. The big and that duty is, is translation, really, you know, because we we have that uh, that intellectual work, and and don't, you know, but it's a, a matter of being able to translate it through this academy um, in a way that it will, you know, uh, be able to be a better tool, and uh, in some way we'll be able to um, uh, change, curtail, mitigate, you know, the machinations of the culture that's here um, in a way they'll be able to bring bring others into relation uh, on country as well um, you know so that we can start living like that I start forming institutions like that and that's the tricky part though so we did this so you know you did you sung us in so me and my and my spouse my children you know and you spoke to my children about their ancestors and and um we, and whether understood you or not, it was you were. It wasn't that declarative knowledge. It was the way you were bringing us into place um, that allowed the place to speak, that allowed you to speak. So you sung us in, you know. But as a way of, you know, opening us up and opening uh, kind of way that we could we could come together and hear hear country speaking in that place, you know, um, from that waterfall and. Um, all the way and as we're coming into that uh, that place that place seasonally you know in the right season too you know where where people go to shelter yeah, in this season um, you know up in the high ground you know but in that kind of I don't know big sort of bowl <laughs> you know protected area <laughs> you know um, you know with of course all that high ground um, the old fellas and men with business as well all around you know that that very you know very sacred very safe place um that was amazing but so much knowledge coming that i'm still unpacking now and right down to um 
uh, how you were, you know, how many koalas are in that place, but then how you counted them coming in, you know, because you didn't count them from one, two, three, you counted backwards, <laughs> counted backwards from the total number of koalas that are currently there and uh, how many of them were present. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot in there that gives me uh, guidance around, you know, uh, data analysis and things like that, and even approaches to how we measure things and what we measure. You know, how do we measure these gaps, these deficits? Do we even measure them? Are we even asking the right questions? Because at the same time, those koalas have chlamydia, not doing well, and that's not a problem that we've been able to solve yet. <laughs> so, you know, koala numbers uh, are not a problem, and are they even the measure? But the, it was that idea of counting, counting them backwards that really shifts that perspective. Uh, but then seeing, seeing the biggest story of that place, but then following the water down and knowing that water goes from that waterfall down to the sea, and that's where the women and children follow it down in the next season when they go to the coast. You know, that's really something. But then along the way, to find that playground, for want of a better word, that has been built, constructed, for want of better words, um, grounded in both of our research, something I was completely unaware of, that, that my research from over a decade ago, your research um, from, from that time as well, that, um, that the people who made that space, that they were drawing on that research, our research together, it just, it seems like a really good meeting place of ideas. And it's the only place I've ever seen it used like right in the way it was intended. And I didn't know it had ever been used in that way, uh, any, of, any of that work. And it was just, it was really, it was revealing for me to be in that place, to see a place where, you know, with a minimal design, it would be designed in a way so that, you know, it, it was didactic, the pedagogies of place. It, it was just the affordances of how the space was made just allowed country to speak. It was like being brought into place, you know, uh, by elders and traditional owners, just in the way you're guided through um, by how you use the space. Uh, to go there and see all these families from all around the world interacting with each other and sitting and, and yarning, eating, socializing, but in original ways without even knowing that that's what they were doing. <laughs> the, the space, the place was you know, guiding to do that. And just all these kids from all around the world, bloody redheads, little Pakistani kids, <laughs> any kid, and they're all running around and they play. It's not like a normal playground. They're not playing like you usually see kids play with all those rivalrous dynamics and everything. And that 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 kind of individualism and that, that mine, mine, that's mine. <laughs> it's my turn. Share, share, you know. No, they were, they were free range just joyfully moving in that space respectfully and lovingly and just uh, in wonderful ways and they were playing like aboriginal kids and it was the place doing it and that's the thing there were no signs up explaining all the aboriginal knowledge there was nothing like that it, it just was <laughs> um i just uh you know for me what a way to come into the place and what a way to come into our uh, our work together. The way it's been, uh, our work's been dancing around uh, together for uh, you know for a decade or so. 
um, which has been, it was pretty exciting for us. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it was, it was an honor to have, um, you know, uh, time to spend with you, but particularly, you know, um, showing, I mean, you know, we, it, it's a, it's a family place. It's a place where women and children were taught culture and story country. And so, you know, to have, have you, Megan and um, Onyx and Diver yeah. and um, Eden there was just amazing. Mm. Mm. I mean, just to arrive at that uh, place then as we, as we continue yarning, uh, we did do a seminar together as well. And, uh, you know, part of that was, was looking at the, um, at the difference between liber li liberty and sovereignty. Sovereignty from an Aboriginal perspective is quite different from the sovereignties that you hear uh, called out around the world at the moment. But there is, um, yeah, and to our mind that a lot of the struggles in the world at the moment are between those two different ideas of, uh, of freedom, which I, I guess we can get into that as we go along as well, because uh, that's uh, a bit of a, that's a backdrop, a bit of a compass to a lot of what we're talking about. But we've both arrived at this place where we're asking the wrong, we're, we're just saying we're asking the wrong questions. You know, all the efforts that have been happening uh, for so long in education and Aboriginal education particularly is, um, is seldom acknowledging the realities and it's almost never asking the right questions. Russ, I smashed my thumbnail a few years back. I am. And, and, you know, when you, you knock that thumbnail off and it never grows back, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it sort of grows through with this sort of ripple. And every time, like it takes, you know, it takes a few months for it to grow through. That that ripple just sort of goes through it. And you keep thinking as that ripple reaches the end of your thumbnail and you're cutting that off, you're thinking, oh, good, that's done now. It's straight. But not that next ripple starting up under the quick. And it comes through again. If you had a time-lapse camera, it would just be like waves crashing across your thumb at some stage i've got to get to the point where i go all right that that hasn't straightened out it just <laughs> looks like it has because the next bend's coming through that's how i feel about education <laughs> you know with every intervention we do every project we do every theory come up with every you know uh, framework pedagogy everything we do you know i feel like it's it's not straightening things out i feel like no at some stage, you've got to realize, no, this is just what my thumb does now. My yeah. thumb does that. And uh, so what <laughs> I have to look beyond that. Well, what, what do I need this opposable thumb for? And <laughs> how will I yeah. continue like that? Um, yeah. So for me, it's about pulling back that bit and going, okay, hang on. So what is education for? Let's be realistic about it. What's it for and who's it for? And then what real can we do within that space? What really can we change within that space? And let's uh, let's get realistic about that. Because um, arguably, as we were saying yesterday, um, you know, education is in service of the economy. It always will be in service of the economy and the hegemony, um, the, you know, basically the, the oligarchs that run the economy. It will always be that. Education will always be extractive. It will be about producing, you know, the demographics that are needed to keep the economy going. It'll be about producing workers for the economy and so producing workless, the workless for the economy and the consumers, uh, etc. So 
this is what education is. We admit that that's what education is and that that's not something from within education that we have the power to change uh, necessarily. Um, where do we go from there and what questions really do we need to be asking if we're talking about things like reclaiming the publicness of education, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so far, most of our work and interventions, it, it's limited to this frame of whether you a choice between assimilation uh, or segregation. You know, most of the, is particularly interventions into Indigenous education. So, um, yeah, let's open it up and, and get a bit more, uh, get a bit more granular in the realities of what's going on there. I think it, not I truth, think... not truth though, because we also have a problem with that word and we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, we, we can get to truth. Um, you know, if, if we're going to start with the sort of the notion about um, freedom or sovereignty, they're, they're really interesting questions. You have to start with education. I mean, the, the, you know, not just narrowly defining education as, 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 formal schooling or formal university. We're talking about education also that's done inside families and done inside mm -hmm. communities outside of these institutions. So, you know, when you and I are talking about education, that's that whole sort of view of education is what we're talking about. So if you're going to, you know, there is no, um, uh, political revolution without a before you, you can't have a political revolution unless you have an, an educational revolution the two mm. simply can't exist mm. um so you know how do we know this well we know that um you know uh, eddie marbo wouldn't have got the, the 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 case of marbo passed through the high court in 1992 um unless that there were a whole range of a decade of education of his community, those that surround him, bringing non-Indigenous peoples on board to begin to challenge in the High Court Terranilius of Australia. So mm. um, you, you, all of the liberation movements, whether it's um, the Black Lives Matter, um, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa that overthrew apartheid, um, the bringing down of the Berlin Wall, all political revolutions begin with an educational revolution. And, and, but and never, so, never with, never within an education institution, though. It's the no, education on no. the ground, ground where that happens. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you know, that's why when you and I talk, we talk that, you know, education also happens at homes, on country, mm. in fishing boats. Um, mm. you know, uh, on picnic rugs. Um, mm. So um, as well as these formal institutions. So that, that's, mm. you know, as, as Indigenous, uh, as, as Aboriginal scholars, that's, that's, you know, we're connected to the land and the land connects to us. So that's what mm. we mean. Mm. So, um, so if we're going to understand freedom and, and sovereignty and, and their distinctions, and I'd like you to rehearse that a little bit more for me, um, but um, uh, if if you can, if you cannot have a political revolution without an educational one, you cannot have an education without children. Mm. You cannot have a political revolution without children. That mm. children are the central aspect of it all, um, mm. and so uh, we, we can never diagnose 
um, the strengths or the weaknesses of education and our political revolutions as movements mm. without analysing the human condition of the child, and in our case, the Aboriginal child. And so um, uh, it, is, it is really, a, if, if, if you are going to sort of try and theorise your way out of colonialism, you're going to have to begin to understand what's the weaknesses and strengths of education, both mm. the, 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 the formal in schools and universities in, in colonial mm. forms of schooling, as well as our cultural forms in our, in our communities, in our homes. Mm. And so um, we, we have to address that. Then we have to address, you know, sort of, you know, to work together to understand what is the human condition of the Aboriginal child. Um, and I think that this, those that are watching us today, um, future young scholars that will make their marks, our critics, um, our allies, our fellow colleagues, um, we're trying to suggest that dialogue to try and get the problem right. Because when the problem is defined, um, the problem of the solution is formed. And so we have to be able to explain how inequality works for us at the moment. And we need to be able to explain this eloquently for our time. Mm. And we know that uh, inequality has a geography and an architecture. And it has an antiquity and it is ubiquitous. So it's very mm. uh, hard to nail. It's, it has a ubiquity and it has an antiquity um, that is that it's ancient and it's old and it's modern and it's current all at the same time. So um, explaining how inequality works, that it has a geography and architecture is a critical point to getting towards that political and educational revolution we spoke about. Mm. It's also so structural, isn't it? You and know, structural, the, yeah. The inequality, it's its so intensely structural. It is um, systemic, but not to the point where it has infected uh, a system, but more that it is a system of inequality, that the system relies upon inequality and cannot function without it. Arguably, in the economy that we have, nothing can be priced or even have value uh, without inequality. You know, without that limitability and excludability that determines the price of all things. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, nothing can have value unless you have significant numbers of people missing out. Uh, if there's enough cash around and if there's plenty of demand and people are getting what they need, then that means inflation. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know and if, uh, if, if, if supply exceeds demand, i.e., there's abundance, then growth doesn't happen you can't have growth no. and in a growth-based economic system then therefore you know if there's no growth that's a recession if there's negative growth that's a depression and we are currently you know staring down the barrel of, a, of you know um globally you know inflation and um and some some pretty horrendous sort of recession if you look at it with really positive rose-colored glasses you call it a global recession that uh, is probably not going to be dug out of. So Lee Himes, 
lean times and a system that demands inequality and that a system that's defined by inequality, um, it's absolutely necessary to see that. But it's very difficult to see that through uh, our traditions of our recent traditions of Aboriginal scholarship, uh, in which our decolonizing focus is very much grounded in post structuralism and, um, you know, our post modernist kind of theories uh, that ignore structure, where, you know, the reality doesn't exist outside of the text and that you change, you change the symbols, you change the names, the words, you change the discourse. And the idea is that by changing the discourse, you change the reality. Um, that ends up for us being, you know, through all of our indigenous standpoint theory and everything is so grounded in a lot of this Foucauldian uh, business and everything else that kind of, it makes us a bit blind to the systems and the structures uh that we need to change that we need to be able to find the leverage points the inflection points in the narrative um uh to actually you know create any meaningful change but it's then that becomes more complicated because once you change one thing systemically you, it, everything changes you know yeah like you say you can't have a revolution without education um, that's it you know, and, it you know, so you know I think the structural argument that you're talking about is so eloquent. I, I you know, um, when I say how inequality works and it has a geography and an architecture, it's in the architecture that's where where I position the structure. And um, but the structures yes. very rarely speak to geography, mm. and um, and 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 by geography I meaning how the north tries to colonize the south, how the northern mm. hemisphere tries to colonize the south. Mm. And in architecture, I'm talking about um, all of the systems uh, and apparatuses, uh, mm. which is mean to, um, to control how the Northern Hemisphere controls the South. So um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to sort of, you know, um, uh, look at the, what is the state of the human condition of the Aboriginal learner first. Mm, and mm, then I think mm. it would be really good for you to rehearse, um, you know, your, your ideas, which I think are really interesting around mm. uh, um, freedom, liberty and, and, and sovereignty. Cause I think that mm. they, to rehearse that here would be, and I've heard you heard, rehearse them before. Mm. I, I think that that's a really, really good place to start. So Maybe let yeah. me rehearse about what is the human condition yeah. of education and the child. So here's the problem from my point of view. So we know education is failing schooling. And we know that the education of the Aboriginal child in our homes and our communities is also imperiled. That um, our elders, our traditional leaders, our traditional teachers, uh, our traditional teachers that are non-human, which are our country and the animals and the rivers, are all under pressure. And so our cultural knowledge that uh, was, 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 is under pressure at the moment for the Aboriginal learner. And also what happens is when the Aboriginal learner goes into the education, the formal education systems, the systems of schooling and university and the TAFEs and uh, um, mm. they are the last to benefit from these organisations. 
And so um, this is a terrible choice that an Aboriginal child has to make. Um, on one hand, uh, its identity and who it is and who it belongs is not recognised um, or very faintly recognised in the formal system, but is under threat also in the informal systems of, of, mm. of its schooling, its cultural schooling. But nonetheless, this child is so talented. The Aboriginal learner has a, a cultural and linguistic intelligences that when they go to school, it's very unrecognised or generally it's left on the classroom floor because mm. the teacher's skills are inadequate to deal with these intelligences. And all children have rights and all children are intelligent. And so the Aboriginal child has a right to a quality education uh, or that, uh, that most Australian children receive and has a right to graduate from a formal school, a primary school, a secondary school, a school of the air, a school online um, and a university with their identities intact have a right for Aboriginal children to learn and be Aboriginal from schooling. Mm -hmm. So um, we know that schooling is broken and we know that Aboriginal children are broken, but they also have these amazing intelligences and they also mm -hmm. have rights in which Australia is failing to uphold. So that's what, what the problem is for us. What are some of the problems that Australia has? It has an authoritarian shift in the last four years. It's moved to the right. It treats refugees as illegal immigrants. Um, so Australia locks up children in the Pacific. Uh, mm. The governments of Western Australia and Northern Territory are imprisoning children um, and uh, the, um, they are charging children with crimes when they are under the age of 14. Mm. So um, uh, we've got a situation where Australia has uh, some, uh, some, some challenges, climate change, uh, that um, there is a de-democratising of its schooling and its structures, its architecture. And uh, it also has um, uh, resisted the right of plurality of people. Mm. And um, it denies uh, rights to all human beings, to, um, uh, to um, uh, refuge, uh, uh, refuge in times of war. And mm -hmm. it also has um, uh, really uh, narrowed um, who can come to this country and on what circumstances they arrive. So that's the sort of human condition. And I just want to finish before I hand it to you about, so, so how, how do we understand what is the human condition? Now, this question mm. has been asked by numerous scholars, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And uh, we can go back as far as Jacques Rousseau, who's what's the social contract for the poor? What, what, what mm. duty is owed to the poor by those in power who are the rich, who are the minority? Um, there is, uh, you know, we can go back to um, uh, uh, John Dewey's work 
And Dewey was asking about, you know, what is democracy if democracy cannot uh, allow all rights of all people? Mm. Um, but the, the human condition that I want to tell to you, our listeners today is the one that I use constantly is written by Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt was a Jewish woman um, whose parents were killed in the Holocaust. And uh, she was she wrote a really interesting uh, book called The Human Condition, and she defines the human condition by um, uh, six particular items. So the human condition has these six characteristics, and they are key events that compose how humans exist. And they range from birth is the first one, learning is the second one, emotion, aspiration, conflict and death. And so if you track the Aboriginal child in a colonised invader settler society like Australia, and you track them through these, these, these six conditions that Hannah Arendt speaks about, birth, learning, emotion, aspiration, conflict and death. How was their condition at death? How was their condition at birth? How was their condition when they were learning? What was their human condition when they were using their emotions? What was their human conditions when we, under, we, we look at their lives through what their aspirations were and were they met? How did they resolve their conflict with the colonizer? Now, we would add, you and I, two particular items to Hannah Arendt's six ideas to understand the human condition, and that is place, country. So it would be important to understand how the Aboriginal child's human condition will always be poor if they do mm. not own control their own country and waters on which their original traditional owners have descended mm. from. Mm. The second thing we would like to add to Hannah Arendt's six points of human condition, and that is sovereignty. And this is where your work and others have been really instrumental in trying to articulate the, 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 um, the dilemmas, the pitfalls, the um, uh, liberation um, characteristics of the the, the, the issue of sovereignty. So, um, and it's at this time, and it is right for us to hand to you to talk about these distinctions for our listeners and our viewers between freedom, sovereignty, liberty. Mm. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, and I can, I can only throw up questions and answers, I think. You know, there's a lot in that. My God. <laughs> My my children are obsessed with this song right now. This uh, this is what they get at school, and also from their uh, learning from the other institution, which is media media, um, you know, the children's programming uh, that they've had for two weeks in Adelaide <laughs> on, uh, on on TV, and so they're they're singing right now. This we are one, but we are many, <laughs> and that's. That's the story, um, that, that lovely, beautiful song, that story that we have um, 
of the human condition, you know, in Australia. Um, that's the story that they're told at school. They're prepared through these, you know, four pillars and, you know, things that are, you know, aligned with United Nations visions and, uh, you know, international visions around human rights and everything else. Um, they, they're educated in early childhood, at least, you know, around this kind of ideal world and around this vision of a child, you know, as a sovereign being, you know, who's going to enter a, a, a world in which plurality is, is uh, embraced, where a kind of southern plurality is the norm, um, rather than the northern universality and individuality that you were speaking to me about yesterday. Um, you know, it's a, it's a simplistic binary, that one, but, it, you know, heuristics are useful. <laughs> Otherwise, it takes too long to get through a sentence. So <laughs> let's just go with that binary, you know. Um, but they are introduced, you know, um, quite uncritically to this is the world you're entering. But the reality that they're facing in most of the actual playgrounds they play in is, is, a, um, is a really of quite rivalrous dynamics. And they're coming up against like a bit of a hidden curriculum uh, that's out in the world. They're butting up against um, some pretty mean and exclusionary children <laughs> who are going to look at my daughter and say, you look weird. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> what are you? <laughs> And she's like coming, running straight up to them. My sisters, my sisters, <laughs> let's play. I love you. And they're all just like, ew, get away from me. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different world they're entering. I mean, when I look at, there was something, I, 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 this overwhelming lethargy came out of me when you were talking about those, those, those uh, uh, sort of, you know, indicators of the human condition. I actually saw that that's a sequence as well. And I kind of see a life plan there, you know, for every neoliberal subject. You're, you're born, you are educated, you struggle with your emotions. And then uh, what's, what's the next one? Aspirations, um, conflict and death. Yeah, then, then you have your aspirations of like, you know, you, you, you must... Uh, you know, strive to rise within these hierarchies. You know, um, you're going to have to struggle then in order to improve yourself and to make yourself into somebody who is useful for this economy and for your employers that you will rise. Um, and of course, in doing that, you're doing that within uh, a, uh, an economy of city where others are struggling and where you gaining ground will mean others will lose ground. Others will die as you accumulate capital because you've accumulated capital. Others will descend to misery because it's musical chairs and there's a lot of players and not a lot of chairs. <laughs> so, yeah, conflict then <laughs> and death. <laughs> that's, I think that's the syllabus. <laughs> that's the hidden curriculum. Right there. Why we teach them about the sustainable development goals and like, you know, oh, feed oh, yeah, feed Africa. You know, yeah, we've got to feed the people. We can't have people starving. You know, we've got to feed these people, you know. I always use, I use the example, I always use, the, I like the example of Norway because everybody looks towards Scandinavia for their outstanding, 
you know, um, liberal education, you know, institutions, and that these Scandinavian countries seem to have got the balance right with capital, where they look after the social side of things, they look after the society, they have a you know decent welfare system, but doing also doing very well, uh, you know, financially, so that they've managed to strike that New Deal balance quite well with capitalism. They always talk about this. And let's oh, look at this, look at their footprint. You know, they're reducing the carbon footprint. They're planting X hectares of trees, all the same freaking trees, but anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's it's hardly a forest. It's not like the soil's alive or anything. But anyway, we've got all these trees stuffed in here. It's looking good. Um, but I, so I look at Norway and it's like, oh, they're doing so well. And it's like, yeah, but they get two thirds of Ecuador's oil just in perpetuity as like passive income, you know, that they're able to fund that through extraction from the South anyway. And that's how they've been able to do it because they've been able to hold on to some of the benefits of their colonial extension back in the day. And I keep saying this to people, you know, when we're decolonizing, you've got to remember that we don't have a colony problem. We don't just have a colony problem. We, we still have an empire problem in this world. You know, and that, uh, you know, when you get out of the shower, you don't dry yourself from the feet up. You need to attend to your hair first or those feet are going to keep getting wet. You know, there are there are bigger and broader problems in the world. You know, anyway, I, th I think one of those big things, if we want to go with a heuristic and a binary again, is this, uh, as you introduced before, there's this um, between the idea of sovereignty and liberty. Now. Um, so liberty, liberty about this idea of freedom, uh, this kind of, you know, Viking idea of being this free agent in the world, if we want to, I want to dunk on Scandinavia, but <laughs> this Northern Hemisphere idea of individualism, individuality, that, uh, you know, we're all free agents. And that's what, uh, you know, going around trying to fulfill our needs, trying to develop. It's all developmental. We're all developing freely individually and it's just the aggregate of our random movements around there uh, that actually create this invisible hand of the marketplace this uh, free market miracle whereby all problems are solved if you allow the randomness of self-interested individuals you know in massive numbers within gradations um, you, you allow that to just uh, do its thing and you need that with the absolute minimal regulation, minimal intervention um, to, you know, uh, mitigate the worst excesses of that. So you need to remove, you have to have small government for that, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea of limits around small government, no regulation, but at the same time, they kind of want a big government that's going to uh, go full totalitarian and puke on their enemies. Uh, they need a big government that's going to enforce uh, gender roles, for example, uh, so that all men can be free. They're going to need to have a good woman at home that's managing and holding things together for them. You know what I mean? So they, they need that. Um, they need, you know, uh, government to, you know, ensure their borders, are, you know, restrictive, but also that they have enough minority cultures that are being oppressed in the place. Um, to allow them to continue having the privileges that they have, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's liberty. Liberty is the idea of individual freedom, you know, as a privileged for particular ethnic ethnicities. 
Um, and that's what I see coming through everywhere. And I see those groups misusing the term sovereignty. So the sovereign citizen movement is one like that. And you see that's infected a lot of our communities as well, that sovereign citizen movement. People have moved away from land rights and land back uh, activism towards uh, this weird magical thinking stuff from the United States around that, this weird libertarian kind of uh, movement where you can walk into a courtroom and say five magic words after let go, <laughs> which doesn't actually exist. So th anyway, there's liberty on one side. Sovereignty on the other side from an Aboriginal perspective is a very different thing. Sovereignty is intensely rule governed. It doesn't have a central authority. You know, there's no committee at the center uh, organizing things. There's no chairman. You know, uh, power is distributed throughout the, the, the community. Everybody has power. You know, um, some, uh, it's a bit of a gerontocracy in that, you know, some elders and knowledgeable people have authority that comes with knowledge, but that's from power. So sovereignty is actually intensely rule governed, but it's rule governed in that kind of way that uh, true anarchism is, is rule governed. You know, there are a dozen rules and regulations, you know, that is policed collectively daily with every action that you take. Um, that's what sovereignty is. That's what self-determination is. Self-determination is self-governance. And that's really freaking hard. There are a lot of rules with self-governance that comes with that. And it's not the individual freedom that you think it is. It's actually, you have to govern yourself and you have to do that interdependently and you have to manage relationships and it takes a hell of a lot of work. So that's what real sovereignty is. And you, I mean, I feel like there's a real struggle in the world right now between those two ideas. Most people agree that the old institutions aren't working. The old institutions are failing. Um, you know, that a lot of the stuff that came about through the age of prison, um, you know, have some pretty bad self-terminating algorithms <laughs> in them that can only keep resulting in constant cycles of revolution and upheaval and um, extraction, you know, from the land and from the people all over the planet. Most people are in agreement with that. But it's a matter of, you know, what's your solution? Is it to retreat into this, these uh, ideas of liberty? which are very, um, very much about retreating into ethno states. And you find that in our community too, with a lot of the native title uh, sort of way that people are going, people have learned a politics and a governance, which is uh, very, very isolationist, very, these are our borders, these are our boundaries, and we define ourselves by who we exclude, uh, et cetera. Um, yeah, so you have one that, that has the goal eventually of ethnostates and the other that has the goal of, of plurality, interdependence, um, you know, and very little uh, centralised governments, but nonetheless a hell of a lot of governance, which is everybody's business every day. Now, arguably, one of the stories of education is about you know, that uh, democracy, true democracy in that sovereign way is impossible without a very educated populace and that that's got to be the goal of education. And I think, you know, a few of the US's founding fathers had that idea of that that's what education was for. You know, so there's that story of public education. There's also the story of public education, whereas it was kind of like a, um, a consolation prize for the poor that yes, you'll be poor and you won't have very much, but you'll be able to read Dostoevsky and have a very rich inner life. <laughs> you know, you'll be able to have debates down at the tavern 
um, that on a very high level, and you will be all be intellectuals, even though you don't have much. That's a story of education. Yet another story of education is, you know, the reorganization of the world into great nations to facilitate industrialization. And the public education was what was needed to remove people from place and from their bioregional identities and from their multiplicities of identity and the kind of regional local village based economies and identities and the commons that people had to be removed from in order to create great nation states that would be able to scale up to have things like standing armies and massive workforces for factories um etc so i mean that's three different stories of education that i can think of but for you i know there are many more but for you what's another story of education as the institution not as actual education which we do anyway uh what's can you think of uh are there other stories of education we need to include in there yeah, well, um, you know, it 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 comes back to um, uh, I was in South Africa when um, you know, sort of, I cut I cut my te- my academic teeth on the 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 rise of the black movement in South Africa after apartheid had been thrown to the dustbins of history. I was interested in how. Um, uh, how um, former colonial colonies um, rebuild themselves after they throw out their colonial ruler. And I was concluded after that um, early in my career, you know, I'm almost close to the end of my career, and I concluded quite early that schools do the work of the nation and that Aboriginal peoples do not... Um, uh, give up on schools just because we inherited them as colonial artifacts. We will not give up on schools just because we have inherited them from colonialism. They're too valuable to our liberation. Um, mm. While schools are reproduce inequality, they also repro- they also produce change. And so, uh, you know, they're too a valuable tool in our arsenal for self-determination or sovereignty or democratic democratic rights to give up on them. And so when I was in South Africa at this time, uh, um, I was at Fort Hare, the Black University, um, chasing how they're going to rebuild their nation when these two, when the Black and the White child had just uh, laid down their weapons from shooting at each other. And the next day they were in the same class with the white teacher and the white teacher had to teach them how to reconcile and live together. Mm. And um, so the nation were looking to the classroom to do the conciliation. Mm. And as I switched on um, uh, the black consciousness movement, uh, I read uh, the entire archives of the Black Consciousness Movement from Steve Biko to Barney Pityana to Walter Sislu. Um, and uh, up on the television that night at uh, Fort Hare, uh, Desmond Tutu um, came on in the uh, Reconciliation uh, Commission. And um, he laid out the charges against the school. And uh, I was taken by this. Uh, he, he suggested that the, the, the fundamental issue was that whites refused to take instructions from blacks and that it acqui- acquiesced 
in the conditions of injustice, oppression, exploitation and coercion, and that it needed to stop oppressing, oppressing all of the poor. And it needed to move towards a situation where it did not dismiss the black child or their humanity and their aspirations. Instead, mm. embrace them as a, as, a, as a way in which the country's economics could come together. Mm. And I, um, uh, so his, in his version, dismantling apartheid was easy. It was rebuilding the nation so that all children benefit. And I suspect mm. when we come back to, you know, um, the, the, the problem again of how does Australia go forward from here after it's... Mm. Australia has this relation, has this colonial relationship with Aboriginal people. It once owned them and it won't let go of power. And, mm. and we know that if that relationship is to change, mm. we know in our own relationships with our families and our wives, our partners, our husbands, um, is that if we want to change the relationship, we have to give over power ourselves. Mm. And, um, and uh, the only way forward for a settler society is for the teacher to give over power to the learner, is for the mm. state to give over power to its poor, and so that all children and all people are recognised. And I just want to sort of sort of finish with this sort of notion that I think some of scholars, we tend to um, uh, get quite uh, uh, fixated on just studying our own discipline, um, just studying a, a particular, and we're trained, aren't we, to narrowly go in depth to a particular problem. But I, just this little example. So when we analyse colonialism, on Aboriginal children, we can, there's the baby in the bathwater. Mm. And um, most of our scholars spend most of our time studying the bathwater and its conditions, mm. its structures, how it keeps the baby afloat and um, how, it, how it prevents the baby from doing certain things. And then there are some of our scholars that investigate the baby, mm. whether you investigate the baby or its conditions, the bathwater, mm. mm. it is important to understand that not one of them is more important than the other, that we need both investigations. Mm. And sometimes we get fixated on just investigating bathwaters to our detriment. And that we don't get to understand my definition, I suspect yours, of the baby. So mm. I, want, I don't, I, I, I've been, all of my career has, has investigated the educational bathwater. Mm. So that the child can have a different condition by which it can bathe mm. and succeed. Mm. So um, I, I, I want to state, I want to talk in my conclusion, and I guess it's, we're running out of time, but I see the Aboriginal child, the baby, in three ways. It has three identities. The first is its original nation, its First Nation language and culture. In my instance, I am Narunga, 
Ghana and Ngarangiri. So those are my three incredibly important identities, cultural identities. The second identity that the Aboriginal child has, other than its cultural identity, is the identity as Australian, which means that they have citizenry rights. So everything all other Australian children get. And then the, the, the Aboriginal child has this third identity, other than the cultural identity and the citizen identity, it has a sovereign identity. Now, if we come back to the baby and the bathwater, not many scholars are, are studying the sovereign child and its rights. Lots of people are studying the democratic child and its rights to Australian services. And very few people are studying the Aboriginal child and its cultural identities and responsibilities back to its nation. Mm. And so um, whilst the bathwater is very, very seductive to study your entire career, yeah. without analysing the identities that the, the Aboriginal baby is, is formed, mm. the bathwater becomes irrelevant. Mm. Hold the baby, gently tip out the bathwater. <laughs> <laughs> Don't really matter what's in it. You can go on the roses. It's bathwater is good for your roses. <laughs> Look, I tell you, I know we haven't got much time not because necessarily just our schedules, but also your long COVID, which, uh, you know, limits your thinking time to a short thing. So we will wrap up, but um, uh, I'll see how I can do that, tying things together. But like, uh, so I didn't get to go to South Africa and um, you know, I was a Biko fan as a young fella, as, as most people, <laughs> most <laughs> fellas are. Um, yeah, but I did get like, I did have to move out of my my rental property recently at very short notice um, because a South African fellow was um, uh, he bought the place and he was moving in, uh, so I had to move out of there at very short notice. And I met that man. He was very lovely. He was very nice. He described himself as a refugee, and you know I asked him, "Well, how did you go in the detention center? You know, coming in?" And he's like, "Oh, oh you know." <laughs> I didn't go to the detention centre. What uh, detention centre are you talking about? And, um, oh, so, oh, well, you know, well, you must have had to wait for years. Well, it must have been awful waiting for so long and you must have been, you know, living in terror the whole time. How did you survive? You know, and it's like, oh, no, I just uh, didn't have to wait for too long. I just put in my application and uh, I came straight into Australia, just like that. Um, you know, he described himself as a refugee. He bought this place for like a couple of million bucks because, you know, Melbourne really. And boy, that's the topography of, <laughs> of inequality. That's how it's mapped with real estate and with postcodes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's land as capital, as two thirds of the world's capital is land. You know, real estate is how all this is done. Um, you know, uh, yeah, so he he was a refugee uh, from 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 South Africa, a political refugee. He got to bring all his capital here. He got to go to the front of the line here, you know. Also got some a very generous decolonization process, you know, by which they just had to do some truth and reconciliation and tell them about what what happened, and then keep all their stuff uh, <laughs> afterwards, you know. Which I, I keep finding the decolonization 
historically and even now decolonization 2.0 it's about uh, migrating capital for oligarchs mostly this is these are these are what what happens with best efforts as a general rule um so you know i i'm, I'm getting quite cynical about decolonization uh, when I look at it as a, a cultural practice and political practice, of course, there are good things to be done in there. But when I'm looking at education, you know, for us, I think I, I come back to, you know, there's this idea that, that land is real estate now. Uh, there's this idea that, you know, um, our sovereignty is something that has to be before and won. Um, there's also the reality that Australia can't exist without extraction. Australia as a nation and economy and, and identity, uh, marginal identity, it must eat itself in order to continue to survive. It must eat every bit of this land. It must continue extract from the land upon which our communities sit and upon which our dreamings, our knowledge, everything else. That has to be extracted from down to the last nugget until it's all gone. Uh, that's the only way Australia can survive. Now, true Aboriginal sovereignty Australia could not survive that. And all of us in these decolonization efforts, continually, it's a struggle to try and get the occupying government power uh, to recognize our sovereignty. And that somehow we won't have sovereignty until they recognize it, until they give us this sovereignty, that we won't have a voice until they give us this voice, that we can't have truth until they give us the mechanism for truth, for reconciliation, for these things. I say, just like our true education, which you, you know, you spelled out right from the start, it doesn't happen in the institutions. It happens in our families and communities, and it happens on the land, the land teaches us, you know, just like true education in that way, that it already exists. We already have that. In that way, I wonder if we could imagine that actually we already have sovereignty. We never gave up our sovereignty. And do we need the powerful and the occupying culture to recognize it? Um, do we need them to recognize our voice in order to have a voice? Or can we just bloody speak? Um, do we need them to recognize us in their institutions of education? Or can we just continue to educate? Uh, can we actually place all of our efforts towards recognition into simply into education and do we need them to do that and the last point would be the last point would be the example of the jews the jews don't need recognition they need funding they need anything else their kids go to the australia schools during the day and then at night they go to hebrew school and they learn their language there and they learn their culture there and their history there and they just quietly get on with it they have sovereignty, <laughs> Jews, yeah. and they've managed to maintain it on the run for 2,000 years. And I would like to suggest that as an approach for ourselves as well, that our education, our sovereignty, our reclaiming education, that that's something we have right there in our hands if we care to pick it up and just gently tip out the bathwater. And I guess, Maybe. and I guess, I guess, you know, in closing, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's struggles all the way around the world, isn't there? There's the sort of Palestinian, there's the, you know, there's the African, there's the New Zealand, Maori, there's, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think, 
I think it's worth sort of reminding ourselves, regardless of whether we're in a sovereignty moment, a decolonizing moment, uh, a, a, a democratic, the call for democratic, a greater democratic rights in the existing settler state, regardless of that, um, uh, well, even if you're arguing for the Uluru statement of voice, treaty and truth, um, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, regardless of whether you are in any of those, you need an education system that acknowledges what are the inquiry questions an Aboriginal child asks. Mm. Um, and um, I guess it might be fair and reasonable to leave the last word to, to you know, famous educationalist called Stephen Chemis who says that um, do we need an education for living well? And I guess this picks up your point. Do we need an education for living well? Or do we need an education for a world worth living? Which is Chemist's mm. view. Mm. Um, I suspect, um, yes, we need an education system, whether we are in sovereignty or, or, or the democracy or um, treaty. If, uh, if, if an education can be for us living well, then so be it. But I think the more important question for the Aboriginal learner is an education for a world worth living. And I, yes. um, I just wanted to, uh, to, to end by saying that uh, it's plural forms of knowledge. It's mm. plurivocal forms of teaching and learning. It's collective learnings together where both knowledge systems are valid and equal. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me on, on this webinar and, and this talk with you today. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. we, 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 uh, we're fortunate in the careers that we hold that we can play with ideas and pull things apart and pull them back together. And um, you and I, this isn't our first rodeo. We've been around for a while now. And all of those young scholars that are listening to us, I wanted to say to you that... Um, our scholarship is not perfect. It never meant to be mm -hmm. um, in trying to understand and explain how inequality works and its transformation for our Aboriginal community to live for who they want to be. But what we have left is the idea uh, that transformation has to be theorised and that it has to be actioned. And both of those are critical. And to reinforce to you and say to you with all the eloquence both Tyson and I can muster is that a political revolution cannot occur without an educational one. And uh, um, uh, our work speaks for itself. Please use it, build on it, critique it, um, but never forget it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely beautiful. Well, you know, when uh, when those when those young scholars read the paper, they'll see that the paper isn't about any of the things we spoke about today. <laughs> these are the these are the foundational yarns you have to have before you get to the actual thesis, which we never got to really spell out. But um, but uh, yeah, watch this space that's coming. 
it's around educational futures and, and, uh, and indigenous deep time focus and and what that can offer for real change in education uh something that everyone can get behind but uh yeah we'll see how we go with it but i look forward to writing that up with you uh, as we go along and thank you so much for today that was uh that was a beautiful way to finish i felt